At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, you'll find that on page 1,369 in your pew Bibles. Page 1,369. We will be reading the entire chapter of Daniel 1. Hear now the word of God which we will contemplate this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thus far the reading of our word this morning for contemplation. Let us ask the Lord's blessing as we think about these things this morning. Almighty God, we come before your throne of mercy once again asking for your blessing as we have just read your word. May this word... Illumine our minds 
May it mold and shape our hearts that we may go from this place as your children, servants of the King, to do your will in your word and in your world. Lord, we ask that you would bless us at this time. Be with your servant to help him speak. Be with your people to have them hear. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom you've given to us. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may have walked in this morning or even seen the bulletin as Gail likes to email it to us throughout the week and go, okay, Josh, what in the world are you talking about again? Seems to happen every time I come up here. I've got to either explain my sermon title because I use big words or I give a tongue twister and, I'm trying, and you're trying to figure out why I gave it that way. Well, the proper pious preparation prevents preempted profane prophecy is specifically describing Daniel 1, but also because, well, Pastor Kerry keeps trying to give alliterations and he needs to up his game a little bit. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But really what this is about is many times we've heard of the five P's of business, as Pastor Kerry alluded to a couple weeks ago. And frankly, what it really boils down to is what you prepare for is what you're prepared for in the future. And if you're not prepared for it, you're not going to know what to do. Well, it's kind of interesting that Daniel's whole background really isn't explained here, except for the fact that in verse 4, it says that he had to be, or sorry, verse 3 and 4, says he was from a royal family or nobility, and that he was a young man without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve the king's palace. That's all we really know about Daniel's background. Well, not really. We can actually understand Daniel's background a little bit more when we hear about this test that happens in Daniel chapter 1. But how do we get there is the question. Well, the first part of Daniel chapter 1 specifically talks about the battle that happens. The siege of Jerusalem in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Now, this puts it somewhere in the neighborhood between the 580s. Maybe this could be the 605 invasion. More likely it's the 580s. Um, but this is Nebuchadnezzar coming in under... Uh, under his banner, um, again, this is the whole kingdom of Babylonia coming from the what used to be known as Ur of the Chaldees. He comes over, and this is the new power in play. No longer are Egypt and Assyria vying for power. No, Assyria has been swept away by the chariots of Nebuchadnezzar. Egypt and its wonderful bounty is now plundered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And caught in the middle of all of this is the kingdom of Judah, the people of God. They, who had long since fallen from the glory days of David and Solomon, are now merely a pawn on the chessboard of world politics. However, 
they are still the chosen people of God and the line that shall lead to Christ. And yet the book opens up with a terrible thing. The power of the nation of Israel is utterly wiped out. The city lies in ruin. The army is defeated and subjugated. But in fact, we read in verse 2, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Even in defeat, the Lord is not defeated. The Lord gives his people to Babylon to begin the exile. The years of sins have finally caught up. Time and time again through the books of Kings and Chronicles, we talk about good kings and bad kings. We talk about those who were faithful and those who weren't. And the ten tribes of Israel who broke off during the time of Jeroboam and Rehoboam have all been wiped to the four corners of the earth. Never again to be established upon this earth. But there is still the remnant of Judah at this time. There is still hope. There is still a nation that follows the Lord. Until Nebuchadnezzar comes and the Lord delivers Jehoiakim and the people of Judah into his hand. This was not a mere random loss, nor was it a simple calculation of forces. It's not that Babylon came in and had an overwhelming force to Jerusalem and and Judah's small army. No, verse 2 makes it specific that the Lord was in control of this entire situation. And even the enemies of God are still used by him to discipline his children and his people. Babylon, who is seen as the great unholy in the book of Revelation, is used as a tool to accomplish the righteous and holy judgment and purpose of God. This is not merely a random act, but this is guided by God. Also notice, however, that in verse 2, it's not just the army that's destroyed. It's not just the national identity of Judah that's destroyed. In fact, some of the articles from the temple are taken. Not only is it a political destruction, but it is also a religious invasion. Holy articles that are set aside for the worship of God are seized by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to the temple of his God in Babylonia. Trophies of conquest. Look what our God has let us do. Our God is so much better than the God of Judah. Rather than the holy articles that are set aside to worship the true God in a righteous manner, Babylon now pulls them and places them in the house of a pretender, 
a spawn of the father of lies that has led a nation down the wrong path again. Not only is this a political problem, not only is it a religious problem, but it's also a people problem. When Babylon comes in, they don't just grab anyone off the street. They don't just have everybody take an aptitude test and, okay, the top 1% come with us. No, the treasures of God's people that are carried off is not just their political identity, it's not just their religious identity, but it's also the best, the best and brightest for the future generation are carried off now into Babylon. The hope, the hope of a generation that would finally, finally go back to being faithful to God. The ones that you place your hope in to say, there, there, they will be the ones to lead us into a new age, into a new golden age. They are wise, they are smart, they are faithful. And yet, when they're young, they're plucked right out of their homes. The wise rulers, the elders of God that are about to come into their own, are now taken as slaves to a heathen king. This is the background of Daniel. Daniel's national identity is now in question. Daniel's religious identity is now in question. And Daniel's final foundation, his footing of his home, his family, is now all blown away. Imagine being a high schooler nowadays. And all of a sudden, Russia says, United States, I want your top 1.1% of students. And you get plucked. Not because you want to, not because this was a program you signed up for, but just out of random, you get a letter one day that says, by the way, you're moving to Moscow. You're going to be stuck there for the rest of your life. Oh, and by the way, you're now going to be working for the Kremlin. I don't know about you, but that would completely upend who I was in high school. My five-year plan that I had written out, all of my ideas that I was supposed to have, blown into the wind. But Lord, you said that you would take care of me. You said that I would be here, that I, that I would be able to, to be your servant. Now I don't get to go to the school I want to. Maybe my girlfriend is now gone because I'm never going to see her again. My friends are all going to change. My home that I've been in all of my life is now a distant memory. 
This is the chaos that surrounds the beginning of Daniel. And there are three things that life in a foreign land now is pushed to the forefront for Daniel. There is new food, there is new purpose, and there are new names. Now, the new food here is specifically said from the king's table. We see here in verse 5 that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Wow. The king, much like many leaders around the world, typically eats very well. The choicest of vegetables, the choicest of meats, the best wines. In fact, when I was first doing my my very first internship out in New York, I was brought over and I was gifted a bottle of wine and said, oh, this one here, well, this vintage here was actually on the White House list. And they actually would serve this to the president and to dignitaries that came over. And we shared it and yeah, it was really good. And wow, it was amazing. And, but it was this prominent thing to be on the the table of the president of the United States. How much so would it be to the emperor of the Babylonian Empire? Figs and olives, beautiful things from the Middle East, from the Fertile Crescent, citrus fruits, nuts and berries, the finest choice game and meat, the best of cattle. But typically, typically, and this was very specific to Babylon, to a little bit to Assyria, but mostly around Babylon and Persia, many of the kings were not merely seen as kings. I mean, you can see many of this throughout all of history, but especially here, the kings were considered children of gods or gods themselves, and this god-king would have this given as offerings by the people, sacrifice to the king so that he may eat. And so the king shares a little bit of that which has been sacrificed to him and gives it over to Daniel and his friends, to these people that have been given over. It is the richest food. It is the choicest food. It is the food that everyone wants to eat. But they're also given a new purpose. That purpose is to serve the king. Notice here that in verse 5, they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. They were to learn the language, the culture, the history, the religion. They were to know all about Babylonian society, and it was going to take them three years to do it. I don't know about you, but after three years, maybe you learn a language, if you're lucky. (laughs) Sometimes you have to be very, very diligent, and even then you have to use it all the time. Otherwise, you lose it. I can tell you my Latin isn't as good as when I first learned it. Probably my Greek or my Hebrew either, but, you know, we keep chipping away. But the idea that in three years, these young boys, maybe high school age, maybe even younger than that, these young men would be put into the service 
of the emperor of Babylon, the one who rules from the Persian Gulf to the Great Sea, the one who is the key in politics right now, who is pushing the Persian Empire away, who rules from the great deserts, in fact, all the way over to India, all the way north to Turkey. That is who they serve. In fact, the Babylonian kings after Nebuchadnezzar would be called the emperor, the kings of heaven and earth. That was supposed to be their new purpose. Rather than advisors to the anointed king of Israel, the one who ever since Saul, who would be anointed by the prophet and given a crown, now they serve a heathen king. Their purpose is to progress the great unholy. And they are to do this with new identities, new names. The names here are specifically mentioned by the writer. Daniel. Hananiah. Mishael. And Azariah. Hananiah, whom Jehovah hath favored. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, he whom Jehovah helps. And yet their names are stripped away. Daniel is called Belteshazzar, servant of Bel the chief god. Hananiah is called Shadrach, meaning inspired or illumined by the sun god, Rach. Meshach, who is what Shishak is, the moon god, Shishak. And Azariah is now the servant of the shining fire, the shining one, Nego. They are now named after the chief god, the sun god, the moon god, and the god of fire, which one commentator speculates that Nego is actually a Chaldean translation of the name Lucifer. Each of these powers, each of these gods is supposed to be now an identity for these boys to grow into. Servants of the Babylonian Empire and servants of the Babylonian gods. Their identity from El, from the covenant god Yahweh or Jehovah, is supposed to be destroyed by the giving of new names. And yet each of these powers is shown to be less than upset by, or even destroyed by the covenant God, as we will see later. The third part of our passage here this morning, I've entitled David Contramundi, which is a fancy thing, saying Daniel against the world. What do I mean? Well, Daniel says no to the new food. 
Daniel asked the guard whom the chief official had appointed over them in verse 12, please test your servants. We don't want to defile ourselves this way. Notice, interestingly enough here, he doesn't just sit down. He do, it's not, this, this is not like a sit-in protest here. This is not trying to go to the court of public opinion and going, this is what they're trying to do to us. How dare they try to do this to us? No, in verse 8, he goes to the chief official and says, we don't want to defile ourselves this way. He goes through the proper channels first and says, look, we don't want to do this. This is not something that we are supposed to do. Please don't force this on us. And it kind of falls on deaf ears a little bit. So he asks the guard and he says, okay, we understand you're under orders. We don't want you to lose your head, literally. So give us a test instead. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink rather than the choicest of meats and the richest of wine. And what is the assumption by the guard? How in the world are you going to be able to survive? You're going to look absolutely terrible. Vegetables? Where's your protein going to come from? Water? What about the nutritiousness of wine? I mean, we're talking about the B.C. era here. What, what water are you going to get that's clean to drink? How could you possibly look better than the people that have the choicest of things? It's not possible. But there's an underlying current here. Daniel and his friends say, in essence here, we don't want the king's food because we don't want the king's provision. Our provision is from God. We want to depend upon God for our daily sustenance. We want to depend upon that which is scorned and mocked and thrown off to the side because we know it is not going to be sacrificed to your gods or your God king. No, rather... We would have that which is under the sunshine of the Lord, the rain that is given by Him. It's not a hunger strike, but it's done through proper channels instead. The second thing to note here is that notice that the writer doesn't change their names. If you look in our passage this morning, they are always referenced as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All the way through the chapter, even down to verse 16, the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They never get the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They reject the defiling of Babylon and they reject the new identity that is trying to be forced upon them. I want to give a little aside here. Because in our culture this, today, especially this morning, we have an argument, we have a war on identity. Even in our own denomination, 
We have those that claim that identity is what you feel. Never mind the science, never mind what God's word says. Identity is what you feel. What you think and perceive maybe yourself to be. So God made a mistake putting me in a man's body, I should be a woman. Or God made a mistake putting me in a woman's body, I should be in a man. Or, you know, God never really would have given me this sort of desire if he never wanted me to follow out on it. As if there are no struggles, trials, temptations, or even evil in this world. That's what happens when we supplant the identity that has been rooted in God. And we end up changing our names to what the culture wants. When our identity starts reflecting what the world says, we abandon who God has laid claim to. And we are then given over to a debased mind. Read Romans 1 if you want to hear more about that. Another issue here is remember the purpose. Well, there is no new purpose. Daniel, through this test, states that they will still serve God and the calling that he has given them. They will still be advisors. They will still be a blessing, no matter where God has placed them. But it will be to the glory of God alone. Later on, we will hear about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we will hear about the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, one of the only places in the Bible that is actually written, that we know of, written by a non-Hebrew. And it is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel is a very difficult book, even if you know Hebrew, because there are parts of Daniel that are written in Aramaic. Because that was the language of the Chaldeans, the language of Babylon. Specifically, when Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, write this. And he is then upset. His kingship is thrown down. He becomes like a wild beast. Until he recognizes that God, the God of Israel, is the true ruler of heaven and earth. So Daniel does not have new food. He does not have a new name. And he does not have a new purpose. But instead, he is a blessing. And that blessing is recognized and sustained by God. Verses 19 through 21 tells us that of these four gentlemen, none of them were equal after their training. No one. Even those that had been in Babylon for decades. Even those that were homegrown. They still had not the talent of Daniel and his friends. They were ten times better. They were completely better. And it was recognized by the king. But notice this bittersweet thing at verse 21. Daniel remains there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
First of all, it's not a Babylonian king. That's a Persian king. Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar and his entire dynasty. The king of heaven and earth is tossed down from his throne. But on top of that, Daniel remains there. He doesn't go home. He's never able to return to Jerusalem. That is the bittersweet part of this. Daniel's prior preparation of growing up in the faith, of being a young man who has aptitude, who has an understanding of all these things, who's able to pick up on language and culture and understanding and and be an advisor and be a wise man and be this person that is to be leading the next generation. He comes into this test early on when he's still young, when he's supposed to be trained and instead he ends up training those around him. Instead of defiling himself and becoming like the culture around him, he rather holds fast to the training that he has been given, even by his name. The training of the true God. The truth that sets him free. And yet... Matthew Henry puts it this way. Daniel and his fellows kept to their religion. And God rewarded them with eminence and learning. Pious young persons should endeavor to do better than their fellows in useful things. Not for the praise of man, but for the honor of the gospel. And that they may be qualified for usefulness. It is well for a country and for the honor of a prince when he is able to judge who are best fitted to serve him and prefers them on, their account, on that account. Let young men steadily attend to this chapter, and let all remember that God will honor those who honor him, but those who despise him shall be lightly esteemed. People of God, let me ask this question as application. What are you prepared for? What have you prepared yourself for? Are we prepared to go into this world that fights against us? That wants to change our names from Christian to something else? Are we prepared to go from this place, our home, into a world that is filled with darkness and corruption? And people of God, are we willing to be a light in that darkness? Are we willing to let the gospel of God shine forth in the world where we have been called? Daniel was prepared to leave his home, to go to a land far away, and remained faithful through the test that was given. People of God, our home is still yet to come. 
The promise is there. Are we prepared to live as if our home is coming? Or would we rather make life here a lot easier by going with the flow? By just doing it? People of God, the proper pious preparation prevents Daniel's prophecies from his future about the end times from being profane. This could be a story where Daniel gets tossed into a pit of deception, ill-equipment, and darkness. And yet what we learn throughout the book of Daniel is that time and time and time again, Daniel's, Daniel's faithfulness gets him thrown into very difficult situations. Instead of a pit of darkness, he gets thrown into a pit of lions and still remains faithful. His friends will eventually be thrown into a pit of fire and yet they still remain faithful. This is not a book that shows a country so far in decline that even its young men are just gone. But that even in a foreign land, in a world against the faithful, God will still protect, still provide, and still comfort those that are his children, that cling to that identity, not the identity of the God of the worlds or the gods of the world, but that cling to the identity of the name that's been given. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when you leave this place, do you show forth the identity of your name as Christian? Let that be our challenge for this week. Let that be what we see here in Daniel chapter 1. May above all else, may this teach us that we would let the world see Jesus through us. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we come before you our Lord of grace and mercy. As we have been issued a challenge this morning hearing the life of Daniel and the, the tests and challenges he has been through, Lord, may we go through this world which is full of tests and challenges and may we, through your grace and your mercy, through the strength of Jesus Christ, be able to hold fast to our name, our identity as Christian. Lord, may the world see you through us as your children in this world. May we be a blessing to the place where you've called us. May we not turn to the side, but may we run our race to the goal, to you. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Amen.